The case is submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 891298, uh, Ingersoll Rand Company against Perry Proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this is an ERISA preemption case. The Supreme Court of Texas declared that the state of Texas, quote, has an interest in protecting employees' interests in pension plans, and held that a terminated employee can recover under the common law of Texas whenever he proves that the principal reason for his termination was the employer's desire to avoid contributing to or paying benefits under the employee's pension fund. It was a five to four decision in which the dissenters pointed out that this new common law cause of action under Texas law was preempted by ERISA. Of course, the question of whether a federal statute preempts a state law is a question of the intent of Congress. Petitioner submits that the intent of the 93rd Congress in passing ERISA is perfectly clear in every respect. In the language of ERISA, where the express preemption provision preempts any state law that relates to an employee benefit plan, and this law clearly relates to pension plans, from the structure of ERISA, because Congress inserted in ERISA itself a provision which is numbered 510 of ERISA, which does essentially the same thing as the Texas law, a common law cause of action, and which demonstrates that Congress thought that protection against purposeful interference with rights under a plan was not remote, peripheral, or tangential, but was central to the business of regulating employee benefit plans. Next, from the enforcement provisions of ERISA, which this Court has held, are comprehensive, interrelated, and exclusive. Those are the means for enforcing Section 510 of ERISA. Next, from the legislative history of ERISA, which demonstrates clearly, as this Court has previously held in the Shaw case, that Congress intended to preempt, at a minimum, all state laws treating the same subjects as ERISA. The Texas law clearly treats the same subject as ERISA Section 510 does. And finally, from the purposes of ERISA preemption, the purpose of every provision of ERISA is to promote and protect employees' interests in pension plans. Mr. Hurd, let me just ask you a question, if I may. This is a case in which, as I understand it, the Texas court said that uh, because uh, your opponent's client was terminated, allegedly in order to escape a pension fund liability, that that's, pre- that's ERISA, ERISA preemption applies. This exclusive remedy for that kind of termination is, is federal. Is that right? That's correct, Your Honor. What if they'd had a written contract? Supposing a man had an executive had a 20-year written contract that guaranteed him at the end of 20 years participation in the pension fund and maybe a car when he leaves the company and two or three other things. And in the 19th year, they fired him in breach of the written contract, and he was able to at least allege and, and prove that the reason they did it, they wanted to escape their pension liability. Would he have any cause of action in state court? 
for any for the part of the salary he didn't get for his 19th year and so forth? In that case, Your Honor, if the employer's motivation is alleged to be a purpose to interfere with the attainment of benefits under a plan, right. then that would state a claim under Section 510 of ERISA. And that state law, whatever state law was used, contract or misrepresentation and so forth, that state law would be preempted as applied to that cause of action. Even if his damages that he seeks are the salary for the 19th year, the 20th year of the contract? That's correct, Your Honor. And would he have a remedy for those damages in, in federal court? Absolutely. That's my next point. Under Section 510 of ERISA, the lower courts have held uniformly that the relief available is employment-related relief. That is to say, the courts can order the individual reinstated to employment. The courts can also order back pay and front pay and also damages equal to the value of the lost benefits. In other words, the wrong is, is an employment action, and the remedy is to reverse that employment action. It's not to award benefits. And that state rule of law, as you interpret, relates to the plan. Yes, it does, Your Honor, through the employer's purpose to interfere with rights under the plan. Our point is that Congress set up the rights and remedies for those who believe that the employer purposefully interfered with their attainment of benefits under a plan. And Congress's scheme is exclusive. Mr. Hurd, under the federal cause of action that you say would exist under the circumstances inquired about by Justice Stevens, would there be any right to punitive damages? Your Honor, the lower courts so far have held that punitive damages are not available in action. What about attorney's fees? Under ERISA, Your Honor, attorney's fees may be granted in the discretion of the court to a prevailing plaintiff. Counsel, what would happen in Justice Stevens' hypothetical if there were three or four independent reasons given for the termination? One, they tried, they terminated early to avoid having to pay the pension benefits. Two, because he was allegedly infringing on exclusive sales territory that the contract promised him. Any number of different reasons are usually alleged in these wrongful discharge cases. If one of them is the ERISA reason, does that preempt the whole cause of action? I would say, Your Honor, it preempts the cause of action based on the employer's alleged motivation to deprive the individual of benefits. Now, if the employee alleges... What did you say? If there's a... You said if one of the motivations? That's correct. There is a cause of action for purposeful interference with right to benefits under a plan. And that cause of action is preempted, including other non-preempted cause of actions in the complaint doesn't diminish the federal character of that one. May I push that just a step further? Supposing he doesn't allege the reason. He just alleges a written contract. He was ready, willing, and able to perform, and they fired him without just cause, period. And then in defense, they come in and say, the real reason we did it was... They go to state law and they get ready to go to the jury, but their defense is in state cause of action. The real reason we did it is we didn't want to pay him a pension. What do you do with that case if you're a state judge? If the cause of action alleged by the individual does not reveal that he's relying on an alleged motivation to deprive the individual of benefits, 
then that does not have any connection with the reference to a plan. As soon as the element of connection to the plan is introduced, then his claim has a connection with a reference to the plan. If it comes out on discovery and he then says, I didn't know what the reason was, but now I realize the real reason was they wanted to save money on the pensions, then his case goes out the window as soon as he finds that out. Is that right? Uh, the, the, the case becomes federal in character. Uh, Congress provided that causes of action under Section 510 are to be heard exclusively in the federal courts. So when it becomes clear that the complaint states a federal cause of action, the case could be removed to federal court. Mr. Hertz, also suppose an employer uh, um, uh, induces him to quit by threatening him. He sends some, uh, some friends around who say, uh, if you don't quit, uh, we will break your legs. And uh, he brings a cause of action uh, for, for assault against the employer. Is, uh, is, is that precluded? In your question, Your Honor, I haven't heard any connection with a reference to a plan. Well, the reason, the reason they, they want him to quit is so that he, he, won't, uh, he, he won't qualify for benefits. If, if that so, so it is, it is indeed, it, it fits within Section 110, that they are discriminating against him in order to prevent him from becoming entitled under the plan. That's precluded. You couldn't bring a state assault action. State law, state criminal laws of general application. No, this is an assault, a civil civil action for assault, tort. Uh, not a civil action. No, wouldn't bring a civil action. There is a section 510 case. It's about a wrongful death action. They, uh, they they actually blow them away in order to. Uh, uh, wrongful death action would not lie either. No, Your Honor. The the examples can get pretty extreme, but the principle is well. But it's Congress testing the principle of whether any state law, no matter how generally applicable. If it happens to overlap in its uh, in its relief with Section 510, is is uh, is invalid. Well, uh, our point, Your Honor, is that Congress decided what remedies should be available to someone who believed that the employer discharged, fined, expelled, etc., or otherwise discriminated against them. Mm -hmm. the oh, what, what, what is your answer to the wrongful death? I didn't get your answer. You, you said it was extreme, but 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 what is your answer to it? My answer is that would be preempted. Wow. What uh, you, you say, this, uh, this should be a federal cause of action. Of course, the employer denies that the, he fired him for this reason. Uh, and uh, so the issue in the federal case would, would be whether, uh, whether he did it to interfere with a, with, a, with a plan. Is that it? That's correct, Your Honor. Uh, suppose, the, uh, suppose the employer wins on that, that, it, that, that he, he didn't fire him for that reason. What happens to the... Employees state cause of action. Uh, it's probably, is it dis to be dismissed? Do you think they should dismiss the state cause of action? Well, that's a question of federal courts, Your Honor. After the individual has lost on the merits of his federal claim, what happens to the state? Well, he loses claim? on it because it, it, it really, the employer really didn't interfere with plan benefits. That's the reason the employer wins. That's correct. So what, but he's nevertheless... Uh, uh, may have a state uh, claim. Because the discharge was wrongful yeah. for other reasons, such as yeah, a breach exactly. of a common law. Exactly. That's so correct. How does he protect himself while this federal case is dismissed? I mean, while the state cause of action is being dismissed, can it just... It, and you say it can't continue to be on file. The, the federal court would have pendant jurisdiction over those purely state law claims. 
while considering the federal cause of action under Section 510. So he should bring his state law claims uh, with him in the federal court? That's correct, Your Honor. May may I just add one point uh, to the question Justice Scalia was asking? Although it sounds far-fetched, there is, in fact, a case under ERISA Section 510 where an individual was a participant in a multi-employer pension plan and alleged that the trustees of the plan threatened him that they would break his legs unless he ceased from insisting on receiving information regarding the administration of the plan. That was held to state a cause of action under Section 510 of ERISA, and he prevailed. I'm sure it did, but the issue here is whether it also states a valid cause of action under state law. And the case did (coughs) hold that you couldn't. Isn't there a difference as to whether in order to recover under state law you must prove that the purpose was to deprive you of benefits under the plan? In this case, that, that was essential to recovering under the state law, wasn't it? Absolutely. That you didn't fire him for no reason at all, but precisely in order to prevent his recovery. Whereas if someone comes up to me and threatens to break my legs, it really doesn't matter what, you know, what their reason is, does it? I mean, I have a cause of action for assault. Or if somebody wrongfully kills me, my, my uh, you know, I, there, there's a wrongful death action, whatever their reason was. Couldn't you distinguish uh, the situations on that basis and say that only the former are preempted and not the latter? I wish you would, because I find it very, uh, very upsetting that there's no wrongful death action. Uh, uh, I suppose so, Your Honor. The uh, Section 510 of ERISA relates to employment-type actions. And I think that in your case, assault or murder can reasonably regarded as, be regarded as not an employment-type action. Well, you more than that, you don't have to prove that the reason was to deprive you of benefits under the plan. It doesn't matter what the reason was. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, Your Honor. I'm just now catching the drift of your question. That's completely correct. The cause of action in order for the individual to prevail doesn't require any connection to a plan. And in that sense, it's not necessarily connected, whereas in this case, the cause of action exists only because the employer's conduct is connected to a plan. Well, an assault doesn't require any particular motive either. I mean, the, 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 the touching of the person or the, the attack on the person, regardless of the motive with which it's done, uh, constitutes an assault. So do you, do you follow the distinction suggested by Justice Scalia that far? Yes, Your Honor. I, I agree with that distinction. But if the but if the uh, but if it's proved in the case that the reason for the assault was to deprive him of pension benefits, then it's preempted. Is that it? Well, if he can recover for assault merely because he was in fact assaulted without regard to the reason, then I'd say that his cause of action for assault has no necessary connection to or reference to a plan. And would even even if it's proved what the real reason was. That's correct, because it's not necessary to his recovery, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Mr. Bert Heard, before you sit down, yes. uh, you probably have answered this, but uh, I want to be sure. Did, did you raise the defense of ERISA preemption below? Uh, no, Your Honor. I didn't hear it. Uh, no, Your Honor. Well, if it's so clear, why didn't you? The truth of the matter is, Your Honor, that the case was treated as a run-of-the-mill wrongful discharge case from the very beginning. After Ingersoll Rand demonstrated to Mr. McClendon that he was, in fact, vested in his pension and had been vested before he was terminated, uh, that aspect of the case was not pushed by Mr. McClendon. 
And so Ingersoll and Rand didn't uh, work on a defense. It was really the Supreme Court of Texas that resurrected that issue and addressed and decided the federal question that's presented here for this court's decision. Thank you, Mr. Hurd. Uh, Mr. Wright, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, uh, let me first say that uh, I agree with what I take to be the ultimate resolution of the assault and uh, wrongful death uh, hypothetical situations. Uh, normally, one can prevail in a tort action for assault or for wrongful death without proving why you assaulted or killed the person. And likewise, it is not a defense in a wrongful death case or an assault case to say, I did it in order to deprive the person of pension benefits. Uh, what, about my breach, what about my breach of contract case? Do you agree with your colleague on that one? Yes, and in the, the contract case, as I understand it, the, there is no question that the uh, person would have a claim under ERISA. Now, the only thing that was, that, uh, was left open, I think, in the assault and uh, wrongful death hypothetical was, I wouldn't read uh, the word discriminate, uh, Justice Scalia, nor- normally to cover such extreme situations. Um, but of course, you have a, in, in, a, in, a, in a contract case, you would have a claim under ERISA. I might say... Excuse me, I, I, I don't understand. What, what? Why is firing him discriminating, but, uh, but breaking his legs not? Uh, I, well, I don't f- firing him is discharging him, and discharging him is covered by oh, the statute. Oh, okay. Uh, the, the, the other things in the statute are expel, suspend, discipline, and discriminate. So you're, you're not even sure he'd have a, uh, an arrest action? I, I, I don't think he would, probably. He but, certainly would in Justice Stevens. But in my hypothetical, if the plaintiff proves a breach of the contract but fails to prove that the reason was to terminate, you know, get him out of the pension, but rather they just, uh, uh, it was an other, otherwise a breach of the contract, so that the basis for federal jurisdiction would no longer survive, there would be, a, I take it, ancillary jurisdiction to, to grant relief on a state law claim even though it had been preempted? I assume that that's how they, yes. So the preemption is kind of an on and off thing. It's preempted until you decide the merits of the ERISA claim. And if you decide the merits of the ERISA theory adversely to the plaintiff, then the preemption ceases and, the, and there's sort of a springing use and the state law cause of action revives. Well, I, I think that this sort of thing happens all the time in these sorts of cases. As, as this one, the way this one, I think, should have been handled, he argued two very different reasons for why he was discharged. One was a breach of contract. One was uh, discharged to prevent the attainment of pension benefits. Um, the, the, the contract action was actually the focus of the case. In the, in, in and your, your view is that the entire case should have been transferred to uh, the United States District Court and it would have pendant jurisdiction on the other issues? Yes, Your Honor. The United States would like to emphasize that Congress specifically intended ERISA's broad preemption provision Section 502, to displace state law. In pilot life, this court concluded, and I quote, the deliberate care with which ERISA's civil enforcement remedies were drafted and the balancing of policies embodied in its choice of remedies argues strongly for the conclusion 
that ERISA's civil enforcement remedies were intended to be exclusive. The Court also recognized... This is a remedy against the employer, not against the plan. Justice Stevens, Section 510 of ERISA also establishes a remedy against employers, and it is enforceable under Section 502A3, one of the six one of the six provisions that was described in the opinion of the Court in Russell as uh, interlocking, interdependent, and interrelated remedies. I believe you wrote the opinion for the Court. Nothing in that opinion says anything about preemption. Um, well, but the fact remains that this Court has relied on the comprehensive nature of the six remedies considered as a whole. Now, uh, a respondent here argues that his claim for benefits is, I'm, I'm sorry, his claim for interference with the attainment of benefits is different than a claim for benefits. But we think that there are two sides of the same coin, and we don't think that there's a, a basis, given this Court's statements in Pilot Life and Russell, for any distinction between a claim arising under Section 502A1B, the, the uh, provision uh, involving claims for benefits, and Section 502A3, the provision that allows for enforcement of Section 510. R- related to this uh, uh, question, I might say, is, is the suggestion perhaps that Section 510 uh, as a wrongful discharge remedy is not central to ERISA. I'd like to say that to the contrary, Congress recognized and Senator Hartke uh, explicitly stated that if employers could fire employees in order to avoid the payment of pension benefits, then ERISA's vesting provisions, which are critical to the statute, would be worthless. And I think that 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 makes sense. The the First Circuit in the Fitzgerald case likewise said that Section 510 is essential to the Act. And we have a strong argument why you need a federal remedy, and nobody's disputing that. The question is whether the existence of the federal remedy precludes any kind of state supplementary remedy. Well, we think it shows two things. We think the existence of Section 510 shows that Congress clearly understood that a wrongful discharge remedy relates to ERISA, and and hence uh, the state law claim is preempted under 514A. We also agree uh, we also think that why the existence does, why does of the remedy... Why does it show that? Why does it show that it relates to within the meaning of the preemption provisions? I just don't follow that. Well, it's a very broad preemption provision. I, we think the fact that Congress put it in the heart of Title I of ERISA uh, shows that it's, it relates to ERISA. It, it's, well, that's it's a different argument. Yeah, that's a different argument. Um, I mean, I don't see why the fact that it's an important remedy... Uh, an important part of the statute necessarily means that this particular state law cause of action is a law relating to a plan. It's relating to a way of getting a remedy when you've been discharged for an impermissible federal reason. Well, well this, this particular it. state law remedy is, of course, identical to the remedy Congress provided in ERISA, and we think Congress put that remedy in ERISA because it thought that it relates to ERISA, and we also think it intended it to be exclusive. In addition to pilot life, we think that this Court's decision in Metropolitan Life v. Taylor is particularly informative. In that case, Congress held, in light of ERISA's comprehensive enforcement provision and its broad express preemption provision, 
that Congress had so completely preempted the field that any complaint raising a claim under ERISA could be removed to federal court despite the well-pleaded complaint rule. This court recognized that this special rule applies only under ERISA Section 502A and under Section 301 of the Labor Management Relations Act, but determined that a special rule was warranted in light of Congress's especially thorough preemption of these two fields. Respondent cannot explain how it can be that Congress has so displaced state law that the well-pleaded complaint rule has no applicability here, and yet his claim, which is identical to a claim that could be raised under ERISA, is not preempted. In our view, both provisions, separately or together, the comprehensive enforcement provision and the broad express preemption provision, make clear that Congress did not leave room for actions parallel to those enforcing Section 510 of ERISA. If there are no questions, I have nothing further. Very well, Mr. Wright. Uh, Mr. Tavermina, we'll hear now from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please this honorable court. 102 years ago, the Texas Supreme Court came down with the East Line decision, which held unequivocally, without exception, any employer could terminate, terminate any employee for no reason at all, the employee at will doctrine, or sometimes referred to as the fire at will doctrine. Over the last century, the Texas court has changed and developed that law to take its harsh remedies and look at those harsh remedies in light of the realities of today's environment. The Texas Supreme Court has imposed some restrictions on that harsh employment at will doctrine. They have imposed that if the parties contract in employment, a four-cause provision will be inferred in all the contracts. Very recently, the Texas Supreme Court, based on the public policy of the state, said if an employee is fired for refusing to commit a crime, well, we can't let the employment at will doctrine prevent a cause of action because our state public policy warrants, it mandates, that we can't let that wrong go without redress. And the court carved out an, another exception to the employment at will doctrine and said if you can prove that the reason this employee was terminated was because he failed to commit a crime, he will have or she will have a, a state cause of action for wrongful termination. In this case, the McClendon case, the court again looked at the realities of today's employment setting. Pension benefits, welfare benefits, health plans are in so much more an essential element of our employment packages today than they were in 1988. And the court said, we have a public policy. We have an interest in protecting our employees, our men and women, with respect to their pension benefits. And therefore, because of our public policy, if you prove that a man or woman is fired for the principal reason of the employer trying to avoid pension obligations, then that person has a state cause of action. Mr. Tavermina, do you agree that uh, Mr. McClendon uh, also had a cause of action under ERISA 
Section 510 to compel reinstatement or payment of the benefits? Your Honor, he did have a cause of action under ERISA to compel that. When the suit was first filed, he also had the cause of action for the processing of a claim for his retirement benefits, which he did not get. Once he received those benefits, from that point on, the court, the case took the posture of simply a wrongful termination case. Since he did have a cause of action, doesn't that indicate that the cause of action relates to the terms of the plan? No, Your Honor, it does not indicate it relates to the plan. It relates to the employer's motivation for terminating the employment. It does not relate at all to the terms or conditions of a plan. You have, if you take a step back, what do we have? We have a state law in a traditionally regulated area, wrongful employment termination. All states have a right to do that. And the state of Texas has said this is a wrong for which an employee can sue for wrongful termination. Then we have ERISA. What was the purpose of ERISA? ERISA was passed to promote the interests of employees in pension plans and in benefit plans. It was... Certainly all the preemption provisions of ERISA were not necessarily put in to protect employees as opposed to employers. No, Your Honor, but the key element of the preemption provisions were to ensure uniformity to the employers, to avoid different processing and different procedures in different states if they operated across state lines. That was the key element of the preemption provision. And this cause of action created by the Texas Supreme Court does absolutely nothing to the uniformity of the structure of ERISA plans. Well, I thought in pilot life the court held that Section 502 of ERISA was the exclusive mechanism for enforcement of obligations just like this one. Your Honor, you're exactly right. But pilot life was a holding where the court said all we're dealing with here is the way a claim should have been processed under a specific plan. The employee is basically saying the employer did not process the claim properly. That is not the claim here. We are not claiming any pension benefits or any pension rights. We're not claiming anything at all under the plan itself. Going back to the Justice's contract example for just a second, if I understand what the petitioner and the government are arguing, if we are to let the provision in ERISA control the damages, then wouldn't every wrongful termination suit that is affected in any way, if part of the element of damages is, well, what did I lose? I lost my salary, but I lost my pension. For whatever reason, contract or no contract, would that mean that in every state, in every cause of action, if an employee sues for everything that he or she lost by the termination, under their rationale, wouldn't every single employment case then automatically be removed to federal court? Don't most of us have pensions that are going to vest or have vested? Only if it is alleged and it is an essential part of the state cause of action that the reason for the dismissal was specifically to prevent the vesting of the pension. Well, Your Honor, but the way... That certainly narrows the category of cases, enormously. But under the contract example, if the contract included wages, I'm going to pay a certain amount of money, plus I'm going to vest you in 20 years. 
and the contract was then terminated after 19 years. Breach of contract action, wrongful termination action. What are your elements of damages? One of them is my pension. I didn't get it. It it may be an element of damages, but it is not, as it is in this suit, an element of the cause of action. It is an element of the cause of action here to establish that the reason the firing occurred was to prevent the vesting. And that's quite different from being merely an element of the damages. Sir, it's different, but if you look at the court's decision in English versus GE, that was the Energy Reorganization Act that was involved in that case. That act had a similar provision. That was the case where a woman was fired. Uh, She had reported several times to GE that uh, radioactive waste had not been cleaned up properly. And her warnings were ignored, and she put a big piece of red tape around it to show how absurd things were getting, to point out that things weren't being done in the workplace for safety. And the employer wound up firing her for that. Well, if you look at that cause, which the court held, the intentional infliction of emotional distress, was not preempted. But there, there you didn't have the express preemption provisions that you do with ERISA, did you? No, well, Your Honor, you had, you didn't have an express preemption provision, but you had two very similar enforcement statutes, one that said you couldn't discriminate or discharge an employee, and the other that gave specific remedies for any action in there. I, th- I think you'll find the court's treatment of preemption has been quite different in ERISA cases where you have a broad statutory preemption provision as opposed to simply occupation of the field and implied preemption where they're simply claiming it's the same cause of action. Your Honor, I agree with that. But again, you have the state law and you have the preemption opinion, the, uh, the preemption provision, which if you look at the definition of state, it says any regulatory agency or any legislative agency that um, purports either directly or indirectly uh, to regulate the terms or conditions of a pension plan. What does this state law do to regulate directly or indirectly the terms and conditions of any pension plan at all? It is a broad uh, preemption statute, but if you look at it, this state law has nothing to do with the terms and conditions of Ingersoll Rand's pension plan. It has nothing to do with the uniformity of their pension plan. It only has to do with why did they terminate him. And the point raised, why wasn't it raised by petitioner in the lower court if, if it was so obvious, was because it's a different cause of action. They're going, we're looking to the motivation. Why were they terminated? They use an example, a petitioner does, in, in its brief about, well, we're going to int- we would have to introduce evidence at trial to show the complicated formula for vesting. Well, I think that proves that there is no preemption in this case. You're, you're saying that a cause of action under 510 doesn't relate to ERISA? Well, Your Honor, it I mean, doesn't isn't relate... That, isn't that the effect of your position? No, it doesn't relate to the terms and conditions of an ERISA plan. And that's what preemption is supposed to go to. Preemption was made so there could be a uniform scheme that the employers could use and rely upon. It wasn't so you can take away causes of action. And there are many cases. English uh, versus GE is one, but there are other cases where this court has held that just because a state court imposes additional liability or further liability than a federal action, that is not enough to preempt. The statute doesn't say that. The statute does not require that it relate to the terms or conditions of an ERISA plan. The statute simply says 
relate to any employee benefit plan. Your Honor, I agree with that. But I also go back to the language of the definition of state, where it says regulates directly or indirectly the terms or conditions of a pension plan. If you go back to the original premise, you have the state law and you have uh, a federal act which was meant to protect the interests of employees and protect them from things like fraud and misappropriation. And then Congress said, but we have to give something to the employers and we're going to let them have a uniform plan. Now, how is that affected by a state cause of action? The explanation, and it strikes me as a good one, is that the definition of the term state to include political subdivisions that purport to regulate is an expansion so that you qualify as a state even though you, uh, uh, you, you are not a state in the narrow sense if you purport to regulate. But if you are a state, whether you're purporting to regulate the terms and conditions of a plan or not, if you are a state, properly speaking, you're, you're bound by uh, 514A, it seems to me. Well, Your Honor, and I the test is whether it relates to the plan. When you say whether it relates to the plan, you have to go back to the terms and conditions of a plan or the administration of a plan versus a cause of action for an employer's motivation. Well, why do you have to do that? Why, when the statutory language says relate to any employee benefit plan, do you have to go back to the terms and conditions of the plan? Because I think if you look at the majority opinion, for instance, in uh, the Halifax case, where the plant closing law came down from the state, and they said so many plants have been closing in Maine, if an employer closes a plant, we're going to demand a one-time severance payment. The court said, well, we're not, anything severance relates to some kind of employee benefits. But they said, well, look at the benefits, not, there's a difference between employee benefits and an employee benefit plan. The court had made that distinction. Now, the dissent in that case said, we're dissenting, as I understood it, we're dissenting because we think that the state of Maine actually is creating a pension plan or a form of pension plan. So the court concentrated on that in its analysis as well. And here, in the state of Texas, we don't even come as close as Fort Halifax. We don't even have something that could even look like a plan or any terms and conditions of a plan. All we have is the motivation. What was the motivation for someone to go ahead and terminate? Finally, I, wanna, I would like to just talk about the issue of, of damages. Just because there is a provision for certain damages in the ERISA statute does not preclude a state uh, cause of action in a traditionally state-regulated reg- field from imposing additional damages, whether they be punitive damages or whether they be mental anguish. The issue of punitive damages was really not addressed by the Texas Supreme Court, and one of the justices said it was an open question. But there are several cases from this court, including an antitrust case, uh, which was uh, California versus ARC America, where this court said that just because a state cause of action uh, gives further liability or additional liability to uh, a cause of action similar to the uh, federal cause of action, that's not enough for preemption. And that case, as well going back to the Halifax case, This court has said, well, is there any conflict? Is there a conflict with ERISA with this cause of action? There is no conflict. It's consistent. And just as in Fort Halifax, where the court said, if it's consistent and there's no conflict, 
We're going to let the state's but, public but May I interrupt you there for a moment? Yes. You say there's no conflict. Is it not possible that uh, very large punitive damages awards against employers who are funding their own plans could jeopardize the safety of the, the financial soundness of the plan and that there is a federal interest in maintaining the financial soundness which might be inconsistent with awards of uh, punitive damages? Well, Your Honor, I would again just go to the court's opinions in Silkwood, for instance, where the court said that punitive damages or the prospect of punitive damages. Yes, but there you didn't have a federal interest in maintaining the financial stability of the employer. Here you have a financial, in, uh, a federal interest in maintaining the soundness and fis- uh, the, uh, the fiscal integrity of, of, of employer finance plans. Well, Your Honor, you have the plan, and then you have the employer, and this highlights, again, the difference between the two. It's the employer's conduct, the employer's motivation. It's his conduct, but that conduct could rub off on a plan if he's responsible. There, we've had cases in which the employ- you know, employers go bankrupt and that sort of thing, and therefore the plan fails, and you've got to get involved in all this insurance and so forth. Well, Your Honor, that's true, and hopefully that will make employers look at it more closely and focus on not terminating someone's employment, whether it be 5, 10, 15, 30, 40 years, and not not terminate that person's employment for the principal reason of avoiding pension obligations. Yes, it is a serious remedy, but it's a serious wrong that needs to be remedied. All I'm suggesting is there's a federal interest in, it may not be sufficient to prevail, but there's at least a federal interest which would support an argument against punitive damages in order to maintain the kind of balance that you got in ERISA that might not necessarily be available in the state uh, system. I would agree with that, Your Honor. And also, I don't know for sure if uh, ERISA has excluded the idea or the thing of punitive damages. I, uh, you, you know better than I on that point, but I can't answer that question, so I don't None know if that's ever been ruled upon. Do you have a jury trial in, in, in the ERISA action as, as compared to the state action? Would you or did we? Yes. W- would you? Or w- would you be entitled to a jury trial? Not, in, not under ERISA. Would you be entitled to a jury trial under state law? Yes, sir. Don't you think uh, an employer might be less inclined to set up one of these newfangled uh, pension plans that the government was trying to encourage if he knew that uh, he'd be subject to a, a, a jury action in state court for allegedly dismissing people uh, in order to avoid their, their rights vesting under the plan? Well, Your Honor, if we use that logic, then we're basically saying that because ERISA limits the damages, because I think everyone agrees that there's nothing conflicting about the cause of action. There is a cause of action in ERISA, and there is now, at least at present, a state cause of action in Texas. So then we'd be saying that the reason that ERISA is preferred is because it has or might have less damages right. on the right to a jury trial. Isn't, isn't that conceivably why the federal government put in that provision? We're going to assure you up front what your liability or the manner in which it will be determined will be like. You, it will not be a jury trial, and it will be in federal court. Isn't, might that not be an attraction to the employer who's thinking of setting up or, or not setting up a, a pension plan? Your Honor, that could have been something considered. I don't remember seeing it in the legislative history. Well, perhaps. <laughs> Unless there are further questions, I have nothing further. Thank you, Mr. Tabermina. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Hurd, you have four minutes remaining. I think it's important to understand that throughout ERISA, Congress was making a delicate balance. When we talk about promoting and preserving employees' interests in plans, 
There are two elements. One is promoting the employee's rights, but the other part of it is promoting the maintenance and establishment of plans themselves. Section 510, enforced through the remedies of Section 502, are the the enforcement mechanism and the remedies that Congress decided were appropriate and struck the right balance between the employee's interest in recovering damages and their desire not to discourage the establishment and maintenance of plans. Uh, To to take Justice Scalia's question, you can imagine a grocery store with 20 employees in Texas. Suppose there's high turnover within the first two years, but very little turnover of employees after that. It would make sense for the employer in that case to establish a pension plan with two-year cliff vesting so that no one was vested before two years, everyone was fully vested after two years. But the first time a jury verdict comes down from a state court in Texas with punitive damages in it, the employer is going to think very seriously about whether he should alter the vesting schedule and make it the maximum permitted by law, five-year cliff vesting, so as to diminish the credibility of the claims of people who might sue who are let go in the first two years. This, of course, would work to the disadvantage of the other participants in the plan. Another thing the employer might do in that situation is install full and immediate vesting so everyone is vested on the day they walk in so that once again there's no risk of an employee who just terminated claiming the termination was for the purpose of interfering with his vesting. But once again, that would result in giving pensions to people who only work there for a month and would diminish overall the pool of pension money available to those who really do stay with the employer until retirement. Congress decided that the balance that they struck in Sections 510 and 502 of ERISA was the appropriate balance so that employees had protections without going so far as to discourage the establishment and maintenance of plans. Uh, In this way, Section 510 clearly does relate to plans. Uh, Congress understood that there's really a triangular relationship at work. You have the plan, the employer, and the employee. And all three sides of that triangle relate to the plan. Employee versus the plan is vesting, claim procedures, and so forth. The employer vis-a-vis the plan is the funding requirements, for example. But equally important is the employer versus the employee whenever the employer acts for the purpose of interfering with the rights under the plan. In that case, that aspect of the employment relationship is where it overlaps with the field of employee benefit plans. When Congress occupied the field of employee benefit plans, it did occupy that portion of the employment relationship precisely because it does relate to employee benefit plans. Uh, Back uh, on the subject of uh, force or the threat of force, let me just note that the following section of ERISA, Section 511, makes it unlawful to employ force, fraud, or the threat of force in order to interfere with someone's right to benefits under a plan. May, may I just ask this one question? Am I correct that uh, the federal claim could be brought in state court that would be a, based on a federal, based on the federal cause of action? No, Your Honor. It could not. Claims of violation of Section 510 are enforced under Section 502A3, of which the federal courts have exclusive... There's something in the conference report that's quoted that says that whether it's brought in state or federal court, it's still a federal cause of action. I, I don't... I think that that portion of the conference report is referring to claims for benefits under 502A1B. I see. Claims Rather for benefits claim can be brought in either state or federal court, although the law applied is federal law. It's federal law, right. But under 502A3, which is used to enforce Section 510, uh, only the federal courts have jurisdiction of those actions.
Thank you, Mr. Hurd. The case is submitted.